Please take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 22 today. Luke 22, if you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seat in front of you, that would be on page 828. And what we do each week here at Brandard is seek to expose the message of the passage that we're studying together, essentially asking, what did God say? And we seek to say that accurately. And of course, you have the privilege of evaluating whether Clayton or I or whoever is preaching, Dave Cartwright in the case next week, whether we accurately communicate the message of that text. Uh, But then our responsibility, if it has been faithfully proclaimed, faithfully interpreted, is to respond to it rightly. And so each week we're also seeking to apply the Word of God, not just tell you what it says, but also what it means and how it uh, changes the way that we seek to live and follow Jesus with our lives. Today we're in Luke chapter 22. Uh, This section begins what we often refer to as the passion narrative in the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of Luke here. Chapters 22 and 23, especially, and the resurrection is in chapter 24, the resurrection of Jesus. And so essentially, I just told you the end of the story, (laughs) that Jesus is going to die, in case you didn't know that, and then he's going to come back to life. So that's what lays ahead of us in chapters 22 and 23 and 24. Today, we're in chapter 22, verses 1 through 23. So I'll read this passage aloud. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. That's what's provided in the seat in front of you, but uh, any translation you have that faithfully... Uh, translates the Word of God. We're thankful for that. So please follow along as I read chapter 22, verses 1 through 23 aloud. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. 
Perhaps you recall the news story back in December where a manager of an Olive Garden restaurant in Kansas was fired by the corporate headquarters of Olive Garden after he angrily responded to an overwhelming number of his employees calling out or not showing up for their assigned tasks. So uh, from the, the news story that surfaced, essentially he seemed to not be believing that these people's excuses were legitimate, and maybe he had come to believe that on good, you know, for good reason. Uh, but either way, he responded very angrily to what had been happening. And so he sent an email to his staff at this Olive Garden in Kansas saying, uh, if you are sick, bring me a doctor's note and show me that you're really sick. If your dog died, bring me your dog and show me that it died, which was probably a little over the top, but I think what we're trying to realize is he was probably sick and tired of the, uh, the excuses that these people were making about why they were not at, at work that particular day. Well, as you would expect, the manager was fired for that tirade, and uh, perhaps his rent was justified, perhaps it wasn't, we may never know, but I would imagine that because of the day in which we live, it probably was justified. People often call out, I'm sure Clayton probably has tons of stories of this, and many of you from your experiences as well, of your employees just saying, look, I can't make it in today, for good reason or not. But the problem he was responding to, whether his response was justified or not, the problem he was responding to is a significant one. And essentially, it comes down to the fact that we as humans resist doing what is difficult. If there's some way to get out of a responsibility, we want to do that. This is why people say, my dog ate my homework, or, you know, I have a stomachache today, I can't give my speech in freshman speech class, or something along those lines. But in our passage today, we see Jesus coming to his final night before he's going to die. And where we might run and hide, Jesus did the opposite. He leaned into the mission that God had given him. He refused to fall back from what he had been sent to do. And we read from the Gospel of John, he willingly laid down his life. So this was not something that was imposed upon him as part of the divine plan. In other words, Jesus embraced his mission. Jesus embraced his mission. So how should you, as a follower of Jesus, respond to that? Find hope and help in his faithful suffering. And perhaps even just by me saying it that way, those of you as followers of Jesus raises the question, am I one of those people? And if that's a question that you're kind of wrestling through in your mind, we would love for you to listen with that question in your mind throughout the sermon, and then perhaps to ask one of our members after the service, just catch anybody who's sitting near you and ask them, how can I know that I am a follower of Jesus? How can I take the truth that Jesus died for sinners and and apply that to my heart and my life? But here we read that Jesus embraced his mission, and we see that he embraced his mission in the face of hateful betrayal. He embraced his mission in the face of hateful betrayal. That's verses 1 through 6. We read here, of a feast of unleavened bread, which is a a week-long festival that Jewish people would celebrate together that commemorated God's really miraculous deliverance of the nation of Israel out of Egypt back under the leadership of Moses in the book of Exodus. And part of commemorating that, that miraculous event was having the Passover feast and this festival of unleavened bread uh, for a week after the Passover feast. And it's all celebrating that, that God had preserved his people from 
the, the death that he brought to the firstborn in Egypt on that, on that fateful night back in Exodus 12. And so God's people would spread the blood over their doors, and as a result, the angel of the Lord would pass over that house. And here, uh, many, many years after that, many generations after that, God's people are remembering God's faithfulness to them, God's protection of them, God's salvation and deliverance through this feast, through this festival. And again, the, the Passover itself was a meal, uh, and then there was a week-long festival after that. So that's why we have this Feast of Unleavened Bread here. Yes, it's called the Passover as well, and sometimes the New Testament writers kind of conflate the two, but essentially it was a, a, a single feast and then a week-long of, of, of feasting as well after that. But we see in verse 2 that it was at this time when the streets of Jerusalem are getting packed with visitors, with Jewish people coming to faithfully celebrate this festival, that at that time the chief priests and the scribes wanted to put Jesus to death. And it says, because they feared the people, for they feared the people. So kind of an unusual situation there. Like, what, what was it that made them want to kill him now? And it just seems that they were beginning to panic. Like, they didn't want Jesus making a scene while the streets were so crowded. So let's get him out of here as fast as we can before anything else happens. Instead, they end up doing the exact opposite, right? They, they kind of drew more attention than they, than they ever intended to. But in order for them to capture Jesus, or I should say it this way, in order to kill Jesus, they have to capture Jesus. And you read in John, I believe, chapter 11, that the Jewish leaders had told uh, the citizens of Jerusalem, when you see him, let us know. Like they were trying to kind of, kind of put a tracking device on him in a sense, like kind of know what his every move was. If you see him going out of the city, go through a gate, let us know. If you see him at a particular, you know, synagogue or marketplace, let us know so they could kind of keep an eye on him at all times. Well, now it seems that they've kind of lost track of exactly where he is, so they need somebody to help them carry out their desire to kill him. Enter, verse 3, where Satan enters into Judas. Satan hasn't been mentioned a whole lot in this book, but when was the last time where he really was a prominent player on the scene in the Gospel of Luke? I would go back to chapter 4. And what we read there is, and this is Jesus' temptation. You don't need to turn there, uh, but you can mark it certainly if you want to. In chapter 4, verse 13, at the end of the temptation, that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. That's the end of the temptation narrative, Luke 4, 13. When is that opportune time? Well, now you come... Into verse 6, for instance, you have Judas consenting and seeking an opportunity to betray him. Same word, opportunity, there. Whereas last week we read of an opportunity uh, that as a result of suffering for the gospel, you have an opportunity to bear witness. This is a very different kind of opportunity. Judas is looking for a way to get Jesus killed. And all of this because Satan himself has, has uh, entered into him in some particular way. We have a lot we can learn from Judas here. One is the possibility of deceiving and being deceived. And we're going to see this throughout this text, but none of the other disciples suspected him. If they had suspected him, they wouldn't have put him in charge of the money, which we also read in the Gospel of John, that he was basically the treasurer for the disciples. We also learn from Judas the need for continual repentance and faith. He had faked his way into being a follower of Jesus, 
And perhaps you know people like that as well. And what the difference is between someone who starts following Jesus and then falls away compared to the person who starts following Jesus and keeps following Jesus is that that person keeps repenting of their sin. That person keeps walking by faith, not by sight. And you really just kind of wonder, how did the other disciples miss the clues that Judas was going to be the one? And again, we, can, we realize people can fake it very well. Maybe uh, Judas himself was unaware that deep in his heart was a resentment toward Jesus, toward the attention that he gathered, or for the way it had affected his other friendships or family relationships. Maybe he was in some way jealous. We certainly know from other passages, again in John, which is, tells us a lot about Judas, a lot more unique information about Judas there, that he loved money. What does the Bible tell us about the love of money? That we should not give into it, that rather we should be content with what we have. And instead, Judas, we could kind of say, sold his soul for the sake of 30 pieces of silver, which was a significant amount of money. Probably was about 120 days of work uh, that he received here for, for this uh, betrayal. Again, I'm kind of taking details from some of the other Gospels into account here. But he was the one who went to the chief priests and officers in verse 4 here and conferred with them and sought a way to betray him, which shows up later on in the chapter, in, here in chapter 22. But they, they said, tell you what, we'll give you money if you tell us where he is at a particular time. Ideally, away from a crowd, it says in verse 6. Why? Because they don't want a riot. They don't want a scene made here. They want... Maybe you can take us to where he's sleeping at night. That'll be the way that you betray him. And so he agreed to do this for 30 pieces of money. And we come away from this saying, what in the world were you thinking? Like, why is money all of a sudden this important to you? And very likely it's because he has always been a lover of money. And we need to be aware of that temptation in our own hearts as well. We know in Psalm 41.9, that uh, in, in many ways, Judas's prophecy was predicted by the Psalms. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That's describing a real situation in David's life, but in the providence of God, it's describing a real situation in Jesus' life as well. Same as in Psalm 55, verses 13 and 14. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, we used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. But then verses 20 and 21, my companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. So we know that there's... Uh, Something unusual going on in Judas's heart here. Even the evil one himself is involved in this. Going back to Genesis 3, the evil one hates God and wants to, to upend his plans. Instead, he played right end to them. But we assume that there was a, a human component here as well. Just because the Lord was supervising the situation, was over the details of this, and had even in some ways predicted it in these psalms I just read, we know that Judas himself was responsible for his own sin, as every one of us is. And that should weigh heavily on your heart, that you are responsible for your sin. And so, again, you need to deal with that in a right way. You need to have those sins forgiven. You need to have them erased, essentially, how does that happen? 
And the Bible is very clear. It's through the, the gospel, through faith, and through repentance, through faith in Jesus, that his sacrifice, which we'll get to as this sermon goes on and then in the coming weeks, that his sacrifice is what atones for our sins when we put our faith in his perfect uh, righteousness on our behalf. But we know that what Judas and these chief priests and scribes meant for evil, to use the language of Genesis chapter 50, God meant for good. They could not stop God's plan. Instead, they played right into his hand. And so we we come away from this brief passage here about Judas and ask ourselves, what am I willing to do for money? Where do I see the love of money in my own heart? Where do I see discontentment? Where do I see animosity toward those or or, uh, envy toward those who have more than I have, who experience better than I experience? And you could ask yourself as well, what am I willing to do for acceptance or for fame? If you've heard Eric Brown preach, you've heard Eric Brown talk about baseball, so here we go again. But uh, I recently read a book about the Houston Astros cheating scandal in 2017. They won the World Series by cheating. In my mind, they should have lost the, the trophy. That's totally irrelevant to this conversation. But what is relevant is that there were people on that team who made a plan for how they were going to win games. But what's also interesting to note is that there were guys who were on the team the whole time who never participated in the cheating scandal. They didn't say anything about it. They never told the other guys to stop, but they did specifically say, I don't want anything to do with this. Don't give me the signs and all this. They traded for guys at the trade deadline. And as they walked into the locker room, they said, hey, we've got a system. We'll give it to you. It'll help you. And he's like, "Mm, no thanks. There were guys who were willing to do it the right way. So maybe we could say they had a conscience about themselves. Maybe these guys were believers as opposed to some of these other guys. Who knows? But what we can say is there are temptations. We have proclivities. We have our own desires. And the evil one often takes our own evil desires and stirs them up within us. And then we start looking for opportunity as Judas did here in verse 6. He consented and sought an opportunity to betray him. So the evil one took the the love of money that was in Judas's heart and stirred it up like a, in a blender. And then Judas himself started looking for a way to betray Jesus. This should make us terrified of what sin can do in our own hearts and make us run to Christ and say, Lord, I am tempted. I doubt. Help my unbelief, as the disciples themselves said at different points. What are you willing to do for money? What are you willing to do for fame? This passage really cuts to our hearts as it exposes to us that Jesus embraced his mission in the face of hateful betrayal. In verses 7 through 13, Jesus embraced his mission at the appointed time. We know from the other Gospels, it was the right time. All the circumstances were right when Jesus laid down his life for us as his friends, the Gospel of John says. He embraced his mission at the appointed time on the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Do you see the irony in that? That Jesus, the Lamb of God, who we sang about multiple times today in our songs, laid down his life as the sacrificial lamb on the day when thousands upon thousands of lambs were being slain, having their blood shed as a way of commemorating deliverance 
and asking forgiveness for other sins. And so Jesus embraced his mission at the appointed time. And so Jesus sent these disciples in verse 8 to go and prepare the Passover. Likely that would have meant things like make sure the table is set, make sure there's food to be eaten, make sure there's wine to drink, make sure all the details are in place so that when we arrive, we can get right down to this important feast. These disciples, who likely themselves were unaware of the intricacies of Jerusalem, had no idea where they should go to set up this feast. And so they asked him, where would you have us to prepare it? And he said, you're going to go into the city and you're going to see a man carrying water. Now this whole section here, especially verses 9 through about verse 13, sounds very, very similar to back in chapter 19. Remember the triumphal entry? Go and you're going to find a cult. And how are we going to know which cult? You know, how will they know where to find the cult? And he tells them, you're going to go to this place. You're going to see the cult there. No one's ever sat on it. Bring it back to me. If they ask you why, tell them the master has need of it. They go, and it happened exactly as Jesus said it was going to happen. This happens again here. And what we realize is that uh, Luke is communicating that the Holy Spirit was at work in arranging these details. How much of this Jesus knew in advance how much of it he himself arranged. We don't know. Luke doesn't go into those details of whether he had sent them ahead in some way, you know, sent someone ahead to, to prepare this Passover feast, whether that was simply the Holy Spirit working that out in some other way. All we know is it's clear that this happened exactly as it was supposed to happen. You gather that especially from verse 13. They went and found it just as he had told them, which is essentially a quote uh, or, you know, the, the exact same wording back in chapter 19. Let me uh, read here verse 32, I believe. Yes, verse 32 of chapter 19. So those who were sent went away to go find this colt and found it just as he had told them. And so here we have the same thing here in verse 13. They found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover there. So what we see here is Jesus' uh, loving concern for his disciples in arranging this. We see his sovereignty over this, over this moment and his desire to have this feast. And that goes into, into here, verses 14 through 23. So he embraces mission in the face of hateful betrayal. He embraces mission at the appointed time in verses 7 through 13. In verses 14 through 23, he embraced his mission for the sake of his disciples. And we see this throughout this unit here, that he's especially eager to have this last supper with his disciples for their benefit. I'm sure that it benefited him in certain ways as well. This was particularly for the benefit of his disciples. They were surely confused and nervous and fearful and ashamed, or they were about to be ashamed. And they needed this moment with Jesus to prepare them for what was going to come. They needed to be able to have the hindsight, even just days later, to say, oh, that's what that was happening there. They needed this hindsight years later. Even as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 about the Lord's Supper, he needed to, to, to see exactly what had happened and what Jesus was accomplishing through this Last Supper or the, through what we know as the Lord's Supper. 
And so Jesus prepared them for his suffering here by expressing hope of a future feast. We see this in verses 14 through 17, where he says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Because, he says, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What's he doing here? He's making them look beyond the fact that he's about to die. He's making them go even beyond his resurrection and even beyond his ascension to when he returns. He's about to suffer and he's taking their minds and going way off in the distance to say there's a future day coming where we will feast again. There's a, a song that I, I like called We Will Feast in the House of Zion. It's based off of multiple Old Testament passages. I'd like to read just part of one of them from Isaiah chapter 25. I'm sorry, 26. Still not right. I'm not finding it here. Let me blank out for a second. You guys all just pretend this isn't happening. It is 25. I had it correct. I just was looking at the wrong uh, page here. So in Isaiah 25, verse 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. What is that covering? What is that veil? He says in verse 8, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. What Isaiah is doing there is telling us about a future feast that we're going to enjoy with the Lord, very similar in some ways to the, the marriage feast of the Lamb and In Revelation chapter 19, Jesus is looking to the eternal kingdom. Even before he dies, he's telling them there's going to be a day where we feast together again. And he's giving them hope of that. He's telling them, this is not the end. I'm about to die. They have not gotten that message. Every time he has told them the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem to suffer, they have been confused. They have been contradictory about it. They have been anxious about it. And here Jesus says, I'm about to die. I'm just going to tell you that again. But even after that, there's bright things to come. And he's giving them this expectation of a future feast. Now this section can confuse us a little bit because Luke includes in us in this passage more details than the other gospel writers do. So for instance, in verse 17, he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. That whole section is not in any of the other Gospels. And what we need to realize is, and I've had to you know, study up on this some myself, is that at the Passover feast there were actually four cups that they would, they would uh, drink together. And perhaps at different times they would drink from their own individual cups. Perhaps here it appears that Jesus takes a cup and passes it around the table. But the bottom line was there were four cups, and it seems like here he's describing either the second or the third uh, cup of this Passover dinner that they're having together. So that's why he, he mentions more than just one cup. That, you know, when we take the Lord's Supper, we take the bread first, and then we take the cup second. And that's because that's what he does here later in the passage. But there's a little bit of you know, Jewish culture that we need to get our minds around a little bit in order to understand why he's taking a cup even in verse 17 as well. So this is a very ritualistic ceremony that they were engaging in. 
And by this fruit of the vine, he simply means this, this wine. He's not going to be drinking wine again until he's having this rich wine described in Isaiah chapter 25. And he's simply saying that there is a day coming, there is a kingdom coming when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom over all the earth. So Jesus prepared them for his suffering by expressing hope of a future feast in verses 14 through 18. Here in verses 19 and 20, he prepared them for his suffering by giving a ritual by which to remember his sacrifice. That's what we're going to take in a few minutes when we uh, partake of the Lord's Supper together. We're going to partake of this ritual by which to remember his sacrifice. So here he takes bread, probably unleavened bread. This is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Even that phrase, this is my body, has raised countless questions and split entire denominations throughout church history. This is a very controversial statement that Jesus makes here. And the main thing I would say, the main you know, truth from this passage that I would say at this moment is when Jesus said those words, this is my body, and he's breaking off bread, there's no way that the disciples were confused into thinking, oh, this is actually his body. This is my body there in this original context is this symbolizes my body. And the disciples all would have gotten that. And so for whatever other arguments we need to get into about the way different denominations have handled this question, the disciples themselves would not have been confused here on the night when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and claimed that this is my body. saying This symbolizes the fact that tomorrow my body is going to be broken on the cross. He also then distributes the juice to his disciples. Let me just add a parenthesis as well. It's possible that Luke is writing this kind of out of order compared to the way that Matthew and Mark does this. It's also possible that, that Luke's order is the correct order and uh, and Matthew and Mark have it slightly out of order. Either way, so if you go and read Matthew and Mark's accounts after this sermon, you might be kind of confused because they're not writing in the exact same order. It does raise the question of whether Judas Iscariot was still here at this point. The way that, uh, that Luke writes it, it sounds like he is. By verse 23, uh, verse 22, the Son of Man, uh, I'm sorry, verse 21, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. So if Luke's writing this in order, Judas is still there at that moment while he's taking the Lord's Supper together. I've had people ask me about that in the past, so I just thought I'd throw that in there. According to Luke's order here, Judas is still there. Matthew and Mark do order things slightly differently than Luke does here. But what we read in in verse uh, 19, this cup that is, I'm sorry, verse 20, jumping all over the page here. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What in the world is the new covenant? And the really good answer that I can give to you is come back in a few months or so when Clayton preaches Hebrews chapter 8. There's your long answer is is Hebrews 8. The short answer is your Bible is divided into two sections. Anybody want to take a guess about what those two sections are? Old Testament and New Testament. What's another word for testament? Covenant. Old covenant and new covenant. What that means is that the what we know as in our Bibles as the New Testament is describing what it looks like to live under the new covenant, to live under this new arrangement between God and sinners. Because the whole Bible essentially is answering the question, how does a righteous God, a perfectly holy God, relate to sinful people? 
And the way that God did that under the old covenant was through the sacrificial system and people making regular sacrifices as a way of atoning for their sins. But now Jesus is saying, I'm going to pour my blood out, even as we've poured out the blood of lambs for year after year, decade after decade, century after century in Israel's history. But there's going to be one time where I pour my blood out and it's going to initiate the new covenant. So what is the new covenant in Jeremiah 31? It's basically the fact that we have forgiveness of sins through one sacrifice. And as a result, we have spiritual life inside our hearts. We are regenerated. We are made alive in our hearts. This is Jeremiah 31, about verse 31 through 34 or so is the Old Testament basis for this. And then... Luke mentions it here, and then especially the author of Hebrews uh, develops it in, in Luke. Uh, sorry, in Hebrews chapter eight. That's the new covenant in like thirty seconds. All I'm saying is the new covenant is the fact that we have forgiveness of sins through the shed blood of Jesus, not through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. We are privileged people to be living under the new covenant, to be living in this New Testament era to know that our sins are gone for good and we don't have to keep revisiting them and making one sacrifice after another. So when uh, God's people under the old covenant system would shed blood, it would be a regular reminder to them of their sinfulness, of God's holiness, of their need for a greater sacrifice. The way we remember our sinfulness, God's holiness, and our need for a greater sacrifice is by taking the Lord's Supper together. Every time we drink the juice, we remember that Jesus himself drank the wrath of God that was destined for us, that we deserve. He did not deserve it. And so I love uh, what uh, an author named uh, Trent Hunter, a pastor in South Carolina, writes about this, where he says, at the heart of the Bible is Jesus' saving work. At the heart of Jesus' saving work is his obedient life and sacrificial death. At the heart of Jesus' sacrificial death is his representative substitution, that Jesus died for sinners in our place. And at the heart of all of this is the love of God for sinners. Jesus took what we deserve, and he gives us what he deserves. Jesus obeyed where Adam disobeyed, and then imputes to us the perfect righteousness that is his. This truth can be summarized in a single sentence as Paul does when he tells us, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 This is a beautiful truth that God himself would give us the righteousness of Jesus, the perfect obedience of Jesus in the place of our sin. And Christ himself took our sin upon himself on the cross. Here in verses 21 and 23 then, at the end of our passage, Jesus prepared his disciples for his suffering by proclaiming God's plan to save sinners through Jesus' own death. To proclaim that it has always been God's plan to save sinners through Jesus' own death. So here we get to the part where Jesus says, even while we're taking this supper, the hand of him who betrays me, that's Judas, is with me on the table For, because the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. He's here, Judas is here to betray Jesus so that Jesus could die so that God's saving plan could be accomplished. 
When you look at verse 22, the phrase, as it has been determined, you want to ask the question, okay, as what has been determined? The saving plan of God to save sinners. Who was it determined by? God Himself. When was it determined? Ephesians tells us the answer to that. Before the foundation of the world. What that means is this is no accident. I want to read a quote to you here from a prominent scholar at Oxford in the 1960s to the 1990s. He wrote tons of books. His name is Geza Vermes. Verms, Vermes, something like this. V-E-R-M-E-S. And he once wrote in 2001, had he not been responsible about Jesus here, listen to what he says about Jesus. Had Jesus not been responsible for the fracas in the temple of Jerusalem at Passover time, when Jewish tradition expected the Messiah to reveal himself, very likely Jesus would have escaped with his life. Doing the wrong thing in the wrong place and in the wrong season resulted in the tragic death of Jesus on the Roman cross. Can I just tell you, that's really bad theology. He's assuming Jesus only died because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He said some wrong things. His disciples should have gotten him out of the way because he couldn't get out of his own way. He just kept saying wrong things, saying things like, I'm God and I can save you. And think, No, this was no accident. This was no mistake. This was the plan of God from before the foundation of the world. It was a sovereignly orchestrated event that was at the heart of God's plan to save sinners. The cross was no mistake, regardless of what prominent Oxford scholars will tell you. Acts 2.23 corroborates this fact. Listen to what Peter says there in this sermon in Acts 2, right at the day of, on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Believe what you're going to believe about the sovereignty of God. The cross was no accident. So are those who killed Jesus, was Judas for betraying Jesus responsible? Absolutely. That's what the second half of that verse says. You crucified. He was killed by the hands of lawless men. But he was delivered up by Judas, who was himself responsible. Which is why he says in verse 22 again, the Son of Man goes as it has been been determined, there's God's part. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. There's the human part. You see how these two truths work in tension with one another. And the disciples were mystified by this. They started probably whispering to one another, what's he talking about? Which one of us is it going to be? And Judas was right there, it appears, while all this was happening. So, I would ask you, let me start again with with Christians, as I started off at the very beginning. If you follow Jesus, how does a passage like this one help you? It helps you in your hurting because it reminds you that even the death of Jesus was predetermined by God. Surely this means that your suffering is no accident. It is no mistake. It is part of God's good, eternal plan for you, for you and your family, for your life. 
So if you are hurting right now, if you're experiencing something that is blowing your mind about how to respond to it, you have no idea what that looks like, you can come back to this truth that even the death of Jesus was determined ahead of time by God. And so surely He is with you in this valley and in this storm. To those of you being tempted, I want to urge you, as we discussed in Sunday school, to fight your sin, to not make provision for your flesh, to respond well to the temptations that other people bring into your life. So if you are being tempted, the fact that Jesus himself had to pour out his blood on your behalf for the forgiveness of your sins is a reminder to keep going to war against your sin. To the doubting Christian, you see here the love and the compassion, the mercy of Jesus, that he engages in a beautiful feast with his closest friends, his closest followers, as a means of ministering to them. He is seeking to encourage and strengthen their faith, and he is seeking to strengthen and encourage your faith, even when it feels like your faith just might fail. Cling to the cross, cling to Christ, and to the non-Christian. You see here the sacrifice of Jesus. You see here the foreknowledge of God, the the definite plan of God to sacrifice His Son on behalf of sinners. And I would urge you today, we here at Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church, urge you to repent of your sins so that you can be rightly related to God as well. So that you are not like Judas and like these who betrayed Him and crucified Him. You are not participating with the evil one himself, Satan, who was looking for an opportunity, he was looking for an opportune time. When you resist God and reject God, you are aligning yourself with the evil one himself who resists and rejects God and with all of those who are part of his family tree. But when you repent of your sin, you are transferred from the evil side to the good side. You are transferred, transferred, Paul tells us in Colossians 1, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And that happens when you put your faith in Christ alone. Jesus embraced his mission. So find hope and Christian, find help in his faithful suffering. Let's close in prayer. Our Lord, we marvel at the beauty of the gospel, at your willingness to forgive us as sinners for our heinous crimes against you for our utter rebellion against You and our total dismissal of Christ's sacrifice every time we sin. Totally leaving Jesus out of the equation, considering His sacrifice to be irrelevant at that moment. So give us grace, Lord, to fight our sin well, to suffer well, to continue to walk by faith, In Christ's name, amen.